Muy buenos días, que el Señor les bendiga. Oh, Bob, are you not going to translate for me? I'm sorry. I'm so, I always stay with him when he preaches in our church, but he abandoned me. It is a privilege and a joy to join you this day, and especially to be here with our senior class from Costa Rica. Um, hopefully, in the time of the Sunday school, <clears throat> we can talk a little bit more about how, just how many years Little Farms has been uh, supporting that work. But here there is a bit of some faces of the fruit upon what the Lord is doing in our church, in our school, and so it is a privilege to be here with our students. Let's turn this morning in God's Word to Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9. I've just finished preaching through the book of Amos in Costa Rica. And we're not going to have the benefit of the entire series. But Amos summarizes in the last chapter basically what he has said in the first eight chapters of this book. And we're going to read Amos chapter 9. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and He said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. If they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, Disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, 
and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. They shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. As I mentioned, Amos summarizes what he has shared in this prophecy given by God for Israel, and it hasn't been good news. It's been terrible news of judgment upon a rebellious and stiff-necked people. Verse 1 of our chapter, God promises to destroy the altar and the temple. There will be judgment upon the rebellious. And we are reminded with this temple falling down on the heads of the people of what other event? Boys and girls, do you remember when a temple fell down and destroyed rebellious people? Samson, when he brought down the temple of Dagon over the top of the Philistines. I personally think that the temple referred to is the temple here in Bethel because Amos has talked a lot about judgment upon that false worship. You remember Jeroboam the first set up in Bethel the altar, the golden calves, so that the people wouldn't go down to Jerusalem when the kingdom was divided. And Amos has talked uh, frequently about judgment on that temple. Well, whichever temple it is, God is bringing it down upon the heads of the unfaithful just as if they were the Philistines to be judged by their false worship. In verses 2-4, to God reminds all who think that He does not, is not able or cannot see where they might hide. And of course, this is a common human um, a- attitude, isn't it? Well, God won't see everything I do. Um, God can't be everywhere. There must surely be somewhere where I will be able to escape God's eyes and God's judgment. And God says, if you climb to heaven or if you go to the deep, if you go up to Mount Carmel or even into the sea, I will find you and I will judge you. And verse 4 should make all of us tremble. God, the final few lines of verse 4 says, I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Bible speaks frequently of God seeing His people. It says that He saw their affliction in Egypt and He promised to deliver them. Oftentimes God looks upon the suffering of His people and He delivers us. He sees us. But that's not what this verse says. He says He will fix His eyes upon the disobedient for evil and not for good. People of God, boys and girls, young men and young women, there's this idea in our society today that, you know, well, all religions lead us to the same thing. All religions uh, take us to the same God. All religions basically teach the same thing, that we should uh, love one another and, and, and foster the brotherhood of of mankind and unity. And God is actually 
a loving God. And if we sort of be nice and good, there won't be any problem. For the God of the Bible reveals Himself, yes, as a loving God. But He is a terrible God toward those who insist on rejecting His loving and merciful call to come to Him. This is a message that the church today is not promoting. And it's not loving to hide it. Last week I was in Guatemala. I was invited to speak to the leaders of a presbytery in the western part of Guatemala. And during the conference, some of these things came up. And I asked the brothers, I said, Brothers, when was the last time you presented the reality of hell and final judgment to your churches? Of course, they were very quiet. And the brother that had invited me to speak, a solid, good pastor, a very faithful man, but as he took me to the airport, which was a five-hour drive, um, we're driving along in the car, and, and he touched my leg, and he says, uh, Brother Green, he said, you know, about that question this week that you asked, if we've ever spoken about final judgment and about hell, he says, I have a confession to make. I can't remember the last time that I've talked about that from the pulpit. We don't promote truth nor love. Hiding from the people that we love the truth of God's Word. And the reason that this is love is because God tells us ahead of time. He's telling us ahead of time what will happen to those who continue to raise their fists against the omnipotent God. He is patient. He is forbearing. He is long-suffering. And He tells us ahead of time in warning and in love. In Spanish, we have a saying, hombre prevenido vale por dos. A forewarned man is worth two in the, in the war. But you know, in, the matter, in matters of religion, this is not the case. We have been warned. And even so, so many people do not take the forewarning seriously. And we go forward with our lives as if nothing is going to happen. Look at verse 5. The, the prophet here says, where am I? Uh, verse 5, the God of hosts who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn. Now this is a topic that Amos has touched on before in chapter 5. He says, and you can look at this in chapter 5, verse 1 in this prophecy, he says, hear, the word of the, hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. This topic, this concept of mourning in the, in the context of rebellion and God's patience. How many hundreds of years had God dealt with this rebellious people? Moses took the Israelites out of Egypt around 1450, and now we're in the year 750. We're 600 years, 600 years into these people 
who have consistently and constantly spurned God's mercy. Is God long-suffering? Yes, He is. But there comes the time when God says, now you will mourn. And Amos takes up a lament over Egypt. And he says, I lift up my lamentation, my lament, my mourning. We have a whole book of the Bible that's called Lamentations. People of God, do you mourn over the fate of what will happen to those who are in rebellion and disbelief? I think sometimes that we as Reformed Christians, distorting our own theology and appealing in a distorted way to God's sovereignty. Election. We aren't biblical. And we don't mourn for those who do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I can't, I don't have everything sorted out, the relationship of God's sovereignty and our mourning over the lost. But what I do know is that God caused His prophets to mourn. Jeremiah mourned so much, he said, my head is like a fountain of weeping over Israel. I believe that our mourning for the lost is part of what God uses. So that we as a church will seek the lost. I want to commend your efforts during this time every year with Bethlehem Alive. I know that the goal for that isn't just to present what Christmas is about, but it is the end goal of presenting the incarnation of our Savior on behalf of us. And may God bless those efforts. And the pastor made a call for still some more volunteers. Hopefully he'll have too many. We need to mourn. We need to mourn. And maybe this morning we need to say to God, Lord, I haven't mourned over the lost like I should. Now, from verse 6 on, we find the final, the final plan of God. The failed plans of men because they're in God's sovereign hands, and so all plans of men that go against God will fail. The failed plans of men will receive judgment, and God promises sovereign redemption from verse 6 on. Now in verse 6, God defines Himself who He is. He is the God who builds His upper chambers. Read verse 6 with me here. He builds His upper chambers in the heavens. He founds His vault upon the earth. He calls the water from the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. Yahweh is His name. How is God describing Himself here? He is describing Himself as Creator. Now remember what the local deity... Who was the favorite deity of the folks in Canaan? You remember, right? Baal. Baal was the god of 
the storm and the rain and the crops and fertility. And that's why Elijah, you know, Jezebel and Ahab worshiping Baal, and Elijah says, you know what? God is going to cancel Baal's uh, power, and there's going to be drought. And there was drought. And then, when the priests of Baal are slain, to show that it is God who, Yahweh, not Baal, who has power over the rain, Elijah waits on the mountain, the cloud comes up, and rain comes down. It is Yahweh. Now this is, this is all reminiscent. He mentions Mount Carmel here. He's, this is reminiscent of what had happened with Elijah. And uh, Amos, God through Amos, says that Yahweh is the creator and the sustainer of life. It isn't Baal. It's not Ashtaroth. It's not Moloch. It's not any of the other deities. It is Yahweh. Now, this is important for the order of things. You see, God reveals Himself as Creator first of all. And I think part of the problem with the evangelical church nowadays is we forget this part. You know, we just go around and people are living and they have their own theories about the world and about where we came from and everything. And then we start talking about Jesus as, you know, a Savior. Well, we haven't talked about a Savior from what? We just talk about a Savior. And so Jesus gets converted into a psychologist to help me feel good or you know the a fireman to put out the fires and the disasters in my life or whatever but if we don't start with God as creator who created man in his image on earth to represent him to be stewards here in a relationship with him and we've rebelled against that God if we don't start there then we're going to get it wrong later with about Jesus Christ the bible doesn't start with John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him might have might not perish but have eternal life. It doesn't start there. It starts with Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's important. That order is important. Now that's where Amos starts once again. God through Amos. God's dictating this pretty much through Amos. Okay. And he says, Yahweh is my name. I am Creator, first of all. Now this is important for several things because... We as sinful human beings, <clears throat> we suffer from several distorted lines of thinking. First of all, we pretty much think that we are autonomous. Now that's an absurd thing to believe because, you know, we just had prayers for those who are sick, others who are needy. I mean, if we look at mankind, it's obvious we are not autonomous. And yet the devil planted that seed in Adam and Eve saying, don't worry, God said you're going to die, but it's not true. Your eyes are going to be opened. You're going to see marvelous things and you're going to be like God. And you see, that, that seed of idolatry of ourselves and our own autonomy is our own worst enemy. It's a total fraud. It's totally untrue. It's patently untrue. And yet we like to believe it. And that's why God says here, I'm creator. I'm the one that do it. I do everything. The, my power over the heavens, my vault upon the earth, the rain and the seasons, 
are manifestations of my power as creator. And that's why we need to start with God as creator. We are not autonomous. Secondly, polytheism has been uh, our option. You see, polytheism is a comfortable religion. When we indulge in polytheism, we can have different gods, different deities, different life forces. You see, there's not one creator. And what often happens in polytheism is the gods get played off against themselves. And so you've got yin and yang. And you've got the dark and the light. And you've got the different forces or gods. Nothing's changed today. God says He is the only creator and the only provider. There's just one. Polytheism is ruled out. Relativism is also ruled out. If there is the, cre the creator who originates everything and whose law provides for the rain itself to come out of the sea and fall upon the land, then relativism is excluded as well. Because it is God who initiated all things, we are under His law. <clears throat> Dr. Peter Jones uses the terms twoism or oneism. Twoism means we affirm the Creator and we are a secondary creation. There are two ultimate realities of creation. The pagan view, which was what the Israelites constantly fell into, was oneism. There is no Creator God. Everything is part of the cosmos. There might be deities in the cosmos. There might be different forces. But there's just basically all one reality. And we can indulge in relativism, in human autonomy, in a form of polytheism, and all feel good about it. Oneism is false. The Bible teaches twoism, that God is the Creator. And the Gospel starts there. And we need to remember that. Now in verse... 7 and onward, God says, Are you not like the Cushites or the Egyptians to me, O people of Israel? Did I not bring Israel from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Kerr? What is God saying here? God is saying essentially that no people and no individual, no people and no individual deserve salvation more than any other. God says, you know, I brought you up from Egypt just like I brought the, Israel, the, the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans or the Syrians from Kerr. As far as what you are inherently, you're no different from any of the others. And God had said this already in the book of Deuteronomy. He said, Israel, just remember, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest on the, on, the, on the earth. In fact, you were the most insignificant of all the people. I only saved you from Egypt because I loved you and I promised Abraham that I would do this. Now this sort of gets a little uncomfortable if we think about this, doesn't it? As a church or as individuals, with whom do we compare ourselves? Do we often compare ourselves, and I'm not judging anyone here because 
I do this myself. Don't we often compare ourselves with those who are worse than us, patently worse than us, as a denomination, as a congregation, as individuals? We compare ourselves with those in church who attend less than us, and so we feel pretty good about ourselves, or who give less, or who participate less. Why don't we compare ourselves with Jesus, he was a man, went to church. We don't compare ourselves with Jesus very often because we know he was perfect. And when we compare ourselves with Jesus, we realize really what we are. God says to the Israelites that he is going to punish The disobedient Israelites, they did not deserve His mercy. He had showed His mercy upon them, and they had spurned it. Now, we've come to the end of eight and a half chapters of judgment, of hard words, of severe judgment and punishment upon Israel. Now, put yourself in the place of Israel as a true believer. There hasn't been any word of hope for you. This has been grim. It's been terrible. And probably the true believers, the few that were left in Israel, upon coming to this point, were ready to just collapse. They would lose all hope. And that's where we come to verse 8. The eyes of God are upon this sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. Except, and all of a sudden we hear an except. And I imagine that those who were true believers in the time of Amos suddenly perked up their ears. Except what? except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Say that again. Except that I will not utterly. It's sounded like utter judgment up to this point. I'm going to destroy it from the surface of the earth, he says. I mean, what is that? Isn't that utter judgment? It sounds like utter judgment up to this point. As he finalizes his prophecy... Amos gives a message from the Lord of hope. Except, I will not utterly destroy. God has denounced Israel's rebellion. God has said to them, you know, in in and of yourselves, you're no different than the Philistines and the Syrians. God has said His eyes are going to be upon the, the sinful, ungrateful, rebellious person for evil and not for good. But then he says, except I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. And then we go to verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David, the tabernacle of David, the tent of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old. God says He is going to raise up 
a true tabernacle, a true tent of David. And there's there's different images here. The tabernacle in the in the in the desert that was God's house. He calls it the tabernacle of David. There was a covenant made with Jacob. There was a covenant made with David. This is covenant language. And it is God coming to His people. Now let us note a couple important things. God says, in that day I will raise up. The timing is of the Lord. The timing will be of the Sovereign Lord. And so if you were a true believer in Israel, what did this mean to you? What did this say to you? God's not giving a date. He's not saying how soon He's going to do this. It's open-ended. He said in that day, that, that can mean anything as far as the time being. But He's just said He's not going to utterly destroy the house of Jacob. And in that day, I'm going to do a marvelous thing. I'm going to raise up a tabernacle of David. This was a call to faith. This was a call to hope. And it was a call to perseverance. Persevere, O true believer. Trust, believe, and hope. God says that the action of raising up this tabernacle would be His alone. I will raise up the fallen tabernacle of David. This isn't the message of, well, you can do it. Believe in yourself. This this thing is in ruins. God says the timing will be mine and the action will be mine. When was this fulfilled? When was that day fulfilled? Do you remember how Mark presents the very first words of Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 14? Mark says Jesus came from Galilee preaching the news of the kingdom, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. What time is fulfilled? What hour was fulfilled? All the prophecies, including this prophecy of in that day. That's what Jesus was announcing. In that day. And He says, the day's come. The kingdom of God has come. I'm going to raise up the tabernacle, fallen tabernacle of David. I am going to do it, says the Sovereign Lord. And Jesus Christ came saying, Time is at hand. Time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. Redemption will be of the Lord in the Lord's time. It's interesting that in Acts chapter 15, the Gospel has gone out. Samaritans have believed. Cornelius the Gentile has believed without being circumcised. The Holy Spirit has been poured upon him and the Gentile believers and the church had to deal, had to resolve just exactly what was going on. Things were happening so fast. The things that they hadn't imagined were happening so fast. And so they called a synod meeting. I like to call it a synod meeting. Uh, in chapter, Acts chapter 15 to talk about what's happening and the Gentiles and, and whether we have to circumcise them or not. And after they deliberate, and Paul and Peter and the, the different apostles are, are heard, uh, James stands up and he says, you know, brothers, we've heard what God has done, and this is in accord with what Amos said. And he quotes these verses. And he quotes this verse 
You see, in Jesus Christ, through the power of the Spirit, as the church is called in, Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles together, that's what Amos was talking about. And the apostles understand that the fulfillment of these verses happened through Christ in the preaching of the Gospel and the building of the church. Now, verse 13 describes in God's mind what redemption is going to be like, and it's a complete reversal of the curse. You know, um, as I, I used to read this and really not understand, boys and girls, did, did you understand what 13 and 14 are actually saying? You've got to kind of look at it closely. It says, the time is coming when the plowman will overtake the reaper. Now, what does that mean? I, I guess for many years I didn't understand what this meant. But basically, it's the, the crop is so abundant and you think of barley or wheat back then. The crop is so abundant that the, that the reapers are still reaping the sheaves and putting them in, in the big bundles and everything. And it's, it's, it's gone so long, the, 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 the harvest has gone so long, now we're into spring and the plowman is going to come along to plow up and, and plant the next crop and the reapers aren't done yet. The same with the grapes. The grape is so abundant. They're still pressing the wine when they're ready to plant the next, the next year. What God is saying here is that redemption, he, and, I, and, and, and you've got to read this in the context of, of Amos, God has promised famine. He's promised disaster on the land. He's promised the worst curses of sin. What sin has brought on this earth, Amos has predicted will happen. And now as God presents redemption, He says it's so far the other way, it's unimaginable. It's, so, it's, it's a reverse of the consequences of sin, it's almost unimaginable. The, the harvest will be so abundant, you're gonna have, they're going to have to get them out of the way so that they can replant, so that they can plant again. And there will be so much... Uh, wine from the grapes, press the grapes, that, that it's just it's abundant. It's amazing. And then God says in verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people. They will rebuild their cities. They'll plant vineyards. They'll drink their wine. And I will plant them in their land and they shall never again be uprooted. It is God who will do this. Paul said it is God who produces in us the, will, the, the ability to will and to do. It is God who will call. It is God who will build. This doesn't take away from us the call to persevere, but it is the foundation for our will, our ability to will and to do. And we must remember that. And God promises security. He says, I will plant them in the land and they will never more be uprooted. God promises assurance. He promises safety in his, in, within the bounds of His love and His mercy. The remnant in Israel, the believing remnant in Israel needed this message of hope to persevere through the exile, through the days that were coming. But you know, the most beautiful part of this entire prophecy are the last four words. Says the Lord your God. I don't know if you caught the impact of this. 
God has prophesied judgment. Chapter 1 begins, verse 2 says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The pastors of the shepherds mourn. The top of Carmel withers. And that's how the entire book proceeds. The God of Israel is offended and in His righteous anger will judge. But He will not utterly destroy Jacob. And He will rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David. And these are now covenant promises. I will build. I will raise up. I will give assurance. I will plant them in their land. And never again shall they be uprooted, says, declares, the Lord your God. It is as if God now has completed, His righteousness has been satisfied. He raises His hand in covenant vow. And He says, I will do this. I will do a marvelous thing. And now I declare Myself to be Yahweh, your God. Now His eyes are no longer upon a rebellious people for evil. God gives Himself. He gives Himself as a sign of guarantee and assurance of His promises. Says the Lord, your God. He has just given Himself to this people in promise. He has given as surety Himself, Jehovah, your God. Marvelous. After all, what was it that happened in Bethlehem, people of God? Wasn't it God the Son giving Himself to us and for us? What was it that happened in Galilee? Wasn't it God the Son walking among us? What happened in Jerusalem? What happened on Calvary? God the Son gave Himself to us and for us so that all these promises could become a reality. Praise the Lord. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, the Apostle Paul is very conscious of the fact that this is the only basis for our salvation. And I can quote this in Spanish, but I'd better read it in English. Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Listen to this. Who loved me. And how was that love shown? He gave Himself for me. You see, Paul understood perfectly what the basis of God's love was. What, what, what God's love was based upon. It was the giving of Jesus Christ for us. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, he says the same thing. We should imitate Jesus Christ for the same reason. Walk in love just as Christ loved us 
and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, it's central to salvation that God Himself gave Himself to us and for us. Paul says that husbands should love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for His church. People of God, I believe in concluding, there's at least two things, I'm sure there are many more, but in my own poor ability, I came up with two important things that we should be drawn to. First of all, marvel, admiration. Just think about the reach, the infinite reach of the grace of God. Our rebellion, our sin, God's mercy, God's grace. And I think as we read these last verses of Amos, God's Word just calls us to marvel. To marvel in admiration at His grace. The Heidelberg Catechism starts out, what is your firm assurance? What is your comfort in life and in death and it says I'm not my own but I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me let's marvel this morning let us in admiration let our hearts swell in glory to God if there's anyone listening to this message today who has never experienced the marvel of God's grace, because maybe you've known about the story of of the Bible and the Gospel and Jesus coming, but you've never embraced Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Let this be the day in which the Holy Spirit fills you with admiration and marvel at God's grace and come in humble repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. God's Word calls you. And for Christ's church, people of God, let us never doubt God's salvation and God's Word to us. Yes, we can pass through terrible times. The believers in Israel were going to pass through terrible times. They were going to be banned from their their country. It was never again constituted as a nation. But God promises them on the basis of Himself, His own giving to them, that He, in grace, would sustain them. Let us never doubt. Let us have a firm assurance in the midst of any circumstances. And secondly, this absolute confidence that we have in a sovereign God who will fulfill His purposes in His time and in His own way, is necessary for our life and for our work in this world. We all face different challenges. In life, sometimes things are going well, and other times things are difficult. In our home, in our marriage, with our children, in our work, as a church, in the cause of the kingdom, there are ups and downs. And this word comes to us as a sure word of assurance and confidence, people of God. That in the ups and downs, God is doing His will. And the seal 
that He will be victorious is Himself, is the giving of His own Son. We have a guarantee. And it's Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected and ascended and seated at the right hand of God. That is our guarantee. Admiration, marvel, glory to glorify God and firm assurance and perseverance in the calling that God has called us to. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for a clear word. You have made it clear that You are displeased with sin and rebellion and You will punish it. But, O Lord, the last word is a word of mercy, a word of promise, a word of grace. We have heard that marvelous word this morning. and We praise You and we thank You. Father, we just want to take a moment to marvel at Your love. At the extent of Your love in sending Jesus Christ, God incarnate, for us. We recognize we are no better than the Philistines or the Arameans. We confess it, O Lord. We do not deserve Your love and Your mercy. But, O Lord, we have heard Your Word today. We thank You and we praise You for it. And we pray, Father, for repentant hearts, hearts of faith, and also that You will permit us to persevere in our life and in our work in Your kingdom until You call us home or Jesus Christ comes again. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.